There are a lot of ways to get injured, but what's truly deadly to a trauma patient? How do we spot the snakes in the grass? That's the question for this episode of Country Hits, Rural Trauma from the Scene to the Emergency Department. I'm Jonathan Kohler, a pediatric surgeon, pediatric trauma medical director, and your host for this short podcast series. Our experts know their way around seriously sick patients. Let me introduce you to Drs. Rachel Russo and Jim Holmes. Rachel's a trauma surgeon and assistant professor of surgery at the University of California, Davis. She's also a major in the U.S. Air Force. Jim is an emergency medicine doctor and professor and executive vice chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of California, Davis. Here we go. So Rachel and Jim, thank you so much for joining me to talk about this issue of snakes in the grass, which I think is something when I was in EMT, um, which was a long time ago, but I was an EMT in college. I remember always, you know, as we'd pull up on the scene, usually of some drunken event at a sorority or fraternity party, um, but sometimes a serious one, you know, someone out a third story window. I was always very worried about missing something. And I think my experience you know, subsequently has, has led me to, to have increased respect for those things that, you know, you get distracted by the bone sticking out of the lower leg and, and miss the intra-abdominal catastrophe. I think this is a great topic that was requested by the, the people who are funding the podcast. And I think it's a great opportunity to sort of dive into some of these issues. Jim, let's start with you as an emergency department doctor. When a patient comes in with a, a really bad distracting injury, you know, like the foot's been taken off by a train. What else are you thinking about that might otherwise kind of sneak by you and and be an insidious killer of this patient? Yeah, it's a very good question. Thank you very much, uh, Jonathan, for having me on today. I really appreciate it. It's uh, it's an interesting topic, and and you know that's what always gets uh, the excitement in the resuscitation room when you have something like that. The you know the bone sticking out, or the femurs backwards, or some you know the knife sticking out of the chest, or you know something like that. Everybody focuses on that, and 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 that's kind of why you do have to be systematic. Right, you still have to follow your your ABCs and give the rest of the patient the appropriate evaluation. Uh, I tell you, one of the things we've seen a couple times in our emergency department that that you just wouldn't think would happen in at a level one trauma center, but if it happens here, it can happen everywhere. Is is bleeding and certainly stopping the bleeding it just makes total common sense. But I've seen it happen in our ED where we didn't stop the bleeding, the external bleeding initially, and we got into problems uh, later on down the road from that. I, I specifically remember a, a medical student coming to me one one night in the middle of a night shift on, on a Friday night, and he goes, I think you should come see this. And, you know, sometimes that's it's it's really bad, but most of the time it's it's like the pulse ox isn't hooked up right, and so the oxygen saturation is eighty percent when it's completely normal. So I went over, and sure enough, there's a pool of blood on the patient's bed, and there's a pool of blood down on the floor, and it's dripping from a simple headlock, and that's something that you know can easily be quickly taken care of. But if it's not, the patient can lose a substantial amount of, uh, of blood and, and potentially even die from that. And so you know we work through the the ways that you can quickly stop bleeding from a from a headlock but it is something that wasn't initially done in, in the field. Um, there wasn't any dress, pressure dressing or anything like that, and the patient had just lost a substantial amount of blood, and, and the patient had no other injuries, but a, a young, healthy male, his first hematocrit was 28. It's, you know, it is all from a headlock. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more there, Jim. I have seen that both in my experience in the military and then also now as a trauma surgeon in the civilian sector, and I think part of it 
is when you have patients that have a head laceration hiding under a lot of matted hair, you may not necessarily recognize it as slow ongoing bleeding. And then you put a C collar on and now it's harder to find, harder to see. And perhaps you're looking at the patient from head to toe first. Anteriorly, you roll them and look at their back and you don't really see anything. And the next thing you know, you come back and that slow bleeding has accumulated over time. And the patient that was stable isn't anymore. I think uh, our mantra is all patients are bleeding until proven otherwise. Rachel, what are your go-to techniques then for sort of addressing that scalp lack? So I think this is a, a big debate still about staples versus sutures. So I know that our concern with staples is that while it may be fast to approximate that head laceration, there can be some significant deeper bleeding from the galea. So as a surgeon, I tend to get hemorrhage control with sutures, but I know that sometimes it's much faster in a pre-hospital setting to throw some staples in it, and then we come and address it a little bit later in the hospital. So I think that as a temporizing measure, staples are fine. We just need to know to follow up on it. What about other things that that can lead to that sort of like unexpected decompensation. One that leaps to mind for me as a pediatric surgeon is hypothermia. Cause we see that in kids a lot that, you know, their, their surface area as compared to their volume is, is real different and kids come in cold frequently. What are your thoughts on, on temperature management and what we can do to avoid that becoming a problem? Sure. Well, I think that you hit on like the classic trauma triad uh, death. So we have acidosis, coagulopathy, and hypothermia. So the colder you are, the more you bleed. Now, I did my training in Miami, and in Miami, we just left the doors open. It was hot enough that we didn't have to worry too much about it. (laughs) I imagine in Wisconsin, it have a a different atmosphere. Just a little bit. At least in the winter, summer feels a lot like Miami. Sure. Well, I think that warming the environment in the back of the vehicle is going to be important. Keeping the trauma resuscitation bay and the hospital side hot is important. And then doing what you can with the resources that are available to warm the fluids before you give them or put some blankets on the patient, keep them warm and get cold, wet clothes off of them. Sometimes being naked is actually warmer than being damp and cold. Yeah, I think that's a key point. Get that, get those clothes off and don't trust that like the jeans that are soaked in the creek water are going to be keeping you warm, right? What about like um, regular blankets, like blankets from around the house, if you're picking up a patient or if you have blankets of your own versus like saran wrap or like thermal blankets, any particular preference there? Yeah, I I, I don't have a particular preference to be totally honest. I I think anything that is dry and potentially warm is going to improve your situation. I I would also add that monitoring the temperatures is quite important. Um, We we changed our policy many years ago about the severely injured trauma patients to start using Foley catheters that had temperature probes in them. And it was amazing the things that we all of a sudden were discovering when we were not monitoring the temperatures prior. So I think that's it's, there has to be some awareness and regularly monitoring the t- uh, temperature. Now, that doesn't mean you need to put a Foley, temperature, a Foley catheter in uh, on everybody right off the bat, but be just having situational awareness that hypothermia is a potential problem is important. I, I know when I was a resident, I had a pediatric patient that was sick and I didn't recognize it. And initially they, had, they were normal thermic when they came in. And after a couple hours of trying to get um, IVs and IVs and IVs, it was a very difficult stick. And, and you know, I was a third year resident and didn't 
have the awareness and and the pediatrician came down i called the pediatrician down to admit the patient the pediatrician came down and said what's the temperature on this child and we remit we rechecked the temperature and it was just a couple of hours of of in a sick child though of uh, being exposed for multiple iv attempts and the temperature had dropped to 34 celsius from a kid that was that had been normal and it was just a learning experience that i didn't expect but i appreciate it uh, a lot more now because i i see it over and over again now we see that in elderly patients too, right? I mean, I think it's it's one of those diseases of the extremes of age and in patients, obviously, who have been outside in the, in the elements by the time EMS rolls up to them, right? They've been in that creek, you know, for an hour and a half, getting slowly, slowly colder, colder, colder. And I think that that point that you made, Rachel, about how hypothermia plays into other things, right? It's not just that you get so hypothermic that you have arrhythmias and die, right? But it's that you stop being able to coagulate. And I've had that experience in the operating room where, you know, it's just the bleeding just will not stop. And then you sort of realize, oh, wait, they're 33 degrees. That's that's the problem. What are the other things that you guys think of when, you know, a patient is is just not doing as well as you'd expect? I think that's when we need to start, always start going back to the drawing board. You know, the patient whose injury you would think would only be causing a mild problem who now is hypotensive or is like super coagulopathic other ideas that you you go to for reassessing and that continual reassessment of those a b's and c's oh yeah sure i am never reassured by the patient that was bleeding on the scene and then stops bleeding there's only two reasons to stop bleeding and one of them could be the loss of all your blood volume that's one of the first things that i'll see when a patient is brought in from ems if they have an injury in an area over a major blood vessel, like somewhere in the groin, and the report was there was a lot of blood on the scene, but they haven't been bleeding since, so I didn't put on a tourniquet. Well, now we need to do a pulse check because there's a good chance that the blood is not in the patient anymore, and that's why the wound has stopped bleeding. Oh, that's a great point. Right. It's not reassuring if they're not bleeding anymore. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, I also always worry about missed injuries. Um, we know that injuries, you know, somewhere around 5% of injuries are missed during the initial evaluation. And there are a variety of reasons for that, right? It's older people, it's younger people, people with mental illness, people with low GCS scores, people that are intoxicated. And so I always think about what have we missed when the patient has kind of gone sideways, I guess you'd say. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's always appropriate to start back at the ABCs and work at the ABCs down. But I always have in the back of my mind, what have we missed or what have we under resuscitated? You know, we, we talk about now about appropriate resuscitation strategies and even resuscitation injury now from over resuscitation. I think people now recognize that giving too much fluid can be bad. Um, and so I think sometimes patients are simply under resuscitated because people worry about giving too much fluid, which certainly can happen. Yeah, let's talk about that balance, because I think that, that that's a, a pendulum that swung a bit in sort of the trauma literature, but is also a, maybe more of a fine line than certainly I have always appreciated. You always think like, oh, you have a trauma patient, you know, reflexively, it's like 20 cc's per kilo in kids, you know, or, you know, two liters of saline in adults. 
um, that just everybody gets, right? We have a separate episode about burn care and, you know, when should you initiate massive transfusions, you know, Parkland formula transfusions for patients with burns, which you always have to be thoughtful about, you know, are you calculating that properly and, and should you flood a patient? And we have a whole conversation about that. We don't need to belabor that here. But I think that the the question of, you know, how much fluid and then also, you know, the, the omnipresent question, which fluid um, should patients be getting and, and what's too much of normal saline versus what's too much of, of LR? Any thoughts on that from the sort of cutting edge? Yeah, it's, it's certainly something that's evolved over the last uh, 20, 25 years, substantially from when I was a resident back in the early 90s, where we were, you know, we'd give a bunch of crystalloid and give a bunch of crystalloid and then we give some more crystalloid and then we decide, oh, we need to give some blood and we give a bunch of blood and some more blood and some more blood. And then we're like, maybe we should throw in some platelets and some FFP now, right? And, and so we've learned a lot. Um, in the last 20 years that too much fluids is bad over resuscitation can cause resuscitation injury and, and and now that our trauma population has gotten older that's probably more important and i think that's part of the reason why atls changed their initial recommendations from two liters of of crystalloid to one liter of crystalloid and and certainly the big change now has become you know our resuscitation strategy of one to one to one where you're giving one unit of packed red blood cells to one unit of ffp to one unit of platelets and those that are going to require massive transfusion. You know, the, the difficulty now is recognizing which patients are going to need that massive transfusion and start to institute that one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one process. The other issue is you know, how to monitor your resuscitation and whether you follow a lactate level or, or a base deficit um, to help guide you with your resuscitation. If your lactate is not going down, something's wrong. If your base deficit is not resolving, something's wrong. Um, you can't solely rely on vital signs. There is data out there that says if you solely re rely on vital signs to resuscitate your trauma patient that you will under-resuscitate half of them. So there are additional things that you need to do, but it's it certainly has changed um, over the last 25 years and, and it's very exciting what, what people are doing now. Well, and I think that a lot of this comes from some of the lessons that we've learned in combat over the last two decades. What we look at over and over again is that in the pre-hospital setting, what kills trauma patients and whether that's a military situation or in a civilian situation, is bleeding. And the faster you can get control of that bleeding, the better. And part of that is by supporting the body's natural ability to clot. So depending on where you go and what resources you have available, trying to minimize diluting out clotting factors and trying to replace clotting factors is going to be very important. So each region manages it a little bit differently, but early plasma tends to be a good way to go because what we find is that restoring the body's ability to make clot is even more important than restoring that circulating hemoglobin because there's tons of reserve for oxygen carrying capacity. But what you have to do is stop that bleeding. That's such a great point. I remember when I was a resident, you know, we were very driven by base deficits. And I remember once, you know, writing in order to, to say like, continue resuscitation until the base deficit is, you know, under six. Um, and then coming in and finding like that uh, a very well-intentioned ICU nurse had given 23 liters of fluid uh, to get the base deficit down, you know, and that patient ended up in a rotabed, um, you know, like with a massive lung injury from over resuscitation. So finding that balance and not being so driven by like a specific parameter, but instead sort of saying, you know, just common sense, like the value of the blood is that it can clot and stop the bleeding. And so preserve that value, preserve its ability to carry oxygen, preserve its ability to stop uh, the bleeding from happening and 
and just have a sort of purpose-driven rather than a numbers-driven approach. Let's talk though a little bit. I love that, that, that issue of coagulation, because I think another thing that hides in the grass, right, are other things that throw off your coagulation besides hemorrhage. Um, a big one is patients on anticoagulation, right? Because we see that not infrequently. Medications that either on purpose or inadvertently uh, inhibit your ability to, to stop acute bleeding. Yeah, I think, you know, that can be a real problem. And in particular, it's a problem now that there are so many different types of anticoagulants and ones that sometimes patients don't know that they're on or when they come in, they're unable to tell us because they're so um, injured. And many of them are challenging to detect even with routine labs. I don't know that I have a really great answer other than trying to get as much information about the patient's history from those people who are on scene who might know them if the patient's unable to give it themselves. And I think that's a real value that EMS can contribute um, to help solve some of these bleeding problems on these patients with anticoagulation. It's a very good point. It's it's critical to know what these patients are taking. And and certainly if EMS can providers can bring in their medications or a list of their medications, that is that that can really change what we do. I mean, I think now, you know, there's you know, warfarin is probably the worst drug ever created, um, but, uh, you know, we at least have some um, processes now for reversing the coagulopathy with warfarin that work fairly well. I think K-Centra or four-factor PCCs are, are now available to, to most people out there, although some of the rural places might not have it, and then it becomes a little bit more challenging on reversing patients on warfarin. But the new, I, I say new, but I should probably call them direct oral anticoagulants as they've been out for a while now. Um, you know, they all have antidotes or inhibitors now that are available. The 10A inhibitor, the antidote for that is is super expensive, right? It's $50,000 a pop. People aren't using that that much. People are, are, are typically using four-factor PCCs in those patients. And then your um, antidote to dabigatran works pretty well, um, Praxibind, and it's not nearly as expensive. It's only about you know, three thousand dollars per uh, per administration, so it's it's much more reasonable than the than the ten A inhibitors, uh, reversal agents. Finding out what the patients are on is certainly important. And then the biggest question out there is the plate. The people are on antiplatelet agents because we just don't know what to do with those patients. And and I tell you, if you get twenty trauma surgeons in a room and ask them what to do about a patient that's on antiplatelet agents and is bleeding or or maybe has a bleed in their head, and you get some neurosurgeons in there as well, you'll get a bunch of different ways, you know, whether you should give platelets, how much you should give, whether you should give DDAVP, it's, there's not good uh, evidence out there right now. You know, Jim, I couldn't agree more. One of the things that we see for these patients that come in on antiplatelet therapy is particularly in elderly patients who were stroke prone to begin with, and that's the reason they're on these medications, is if they have a fall and then start having an intracranial bleed, it can be incredibly difficult to control. And I've had patients who have had to go to the operating room and even with giving them platelets, because the half-life of these drugs is so long and it's hard to override the residual that's still on their albumin or circulating in their blood, the more platelets you give, they just keep getting inactivated. And patients have bled to death on the table from a subdural hematoma falling down the stairs one time. I mean, I think that's probably the time, right, where you like, that's where the level one trauma center is helpful, right? If only for their ability to sort of help guide what potential things you can do to try to control that hemorrhage, even during transport. And you certainly were probably not in a place, right, where 
if you don't know what meds they're on, you just throw every antidote in their direction and hope for the best, right? Yeah, you definitely wouldn't wouldn't want to do that. Uh, if you you really need to find out what the patient's on. Yeah, so that that key point of just getting that history. One of the adjuncts that can sometimes be helpful is if they have a tag available then that can direct whether it should be an antiplatelet or anticoagulant reversal for the further resuscitation. Yeah, that's a really cool tool like thromboelastography, which for people who don't know is this device that basically measures various physical parameters of blood as it clots. And it creates these curves that look like different sorts of wine glasses. And then you can have a poster in your office of different types of wine glasses and what sort of coagulopathy it represents. And and it'll tell you what what specific component in the coagulation cascade is missing. I, I, I feel like that's finding its way into the broader world, you know, it started as like a pretty specific thing, I think around liver transplants. And now, now we're seeing it, you know, used in, in ICU settings and, and in emergency departments. And I don't know, are, are they using it in the military or is it out in the field? In some environments, it is available in the field for military transport and for some of those forward surgical hospitals. So it will be interesting to see over the next several years if it makes its way into the pre-hospital setting um, in the U.S. as well. You know, you mentioned transport. Thinking about transport, and particularly when you're going to be transporting patients from long distances, you know, you're a real rural place and, and now you've got a trauma patient who's maybe been stabilized in the local emergency department, or you're in the emergency department and, you know, the weather's bad and it's, they're sending a team to get this patient down to, you know, the nearest big city, but that's, it's going to be five hours in an ambulance. What are things you think about around that time factor? You know, things that we could be thoughtful about that, you know, aren't an issue if you're just taking someone 15 minutes to the local ED, but if you're going to be like spending time in a blizzard on a, on a rural highway, things that you need to be thoughtful about. Yeah, so I think that that's a very important point because what we have seen over many decades now is that the most important thing is to get that patient to definitive care as quickly as possible. So what we know is any time delay on the front end is going to result in worse outcomes and an increased risk of death. So even if you're transporting a patient for the first time from the field to their local emergency department, especially in a rural environment, that can be a long transport. So some of the things that we would want to do if you're looking at prolonged transport is to do some of the early adjuncts to bleeding control. That's direct pressure, wound packing, all of the things that have been taught as part of the Stop the Bleed campaign for just this issue. And then when you're looking at longer transports for a patient who's already been sort of stabilized at one hospital and is being transferred longer for definitive care, then you're looking to what can kill a patient en route. And part of that depends on if you're going by helicopter or if you're going by ground. One of the things that you're going to want to make sure is in a patient that may be tenuous that you have thought about, do they need chest tubes? Do they need to be intubated for this transport. The last thing you want is for them to decompensate in route. Yeah, it's good points. And I, I'll add that if, if they are intubated, that the transport team really needs to make sure that they monitor their, um, not only their oxygenation status, but their ventilation status as well. We've seen patients come in overventilated and underventilated. In fact, we did a study uh, on that exact thing about uh, 15 years ago. And we found out that uh, about two thirds of the patients that had been 
transported to our facility that were intubated had their PCO2 outside of the targeted range, um, including PCO2 levels uh, in patients with intracranial hemorrhages up in the 60s, which we know will increase their, their risk of death. So, so monitoring that closely, I would add that uh, make sure you keep the, the patient warm during transport. And then finally, kind of a simple thing, but it gets forgotten everyone every once in a while, is to make sure that the CT scans get sent with the patients. We've gotten so much better about it than we were 20 years ago, um, but it still occasionally gets missed. The, the systems that are able to upload their CT scans and have the trauma center look at them before they arrive is, is that those systems are increasing out there and it's very helpful. But if the patient, if they don't have that capability, make sure the CT scans go with the patients, including the dictated reports, if those are available. That's one of the things that I see happen sometimes is that the hospital and the sending team has done such a great job of making sure those patient records and the CDs with all the images have come with the patient. But then when there's all this commotion transferring the patient off the gurney and everyone's attention is on the patient and the patient's care on arrival, they forget. They forget about that package of things that came with the patient that's still on the gurney. <laughs> it tends to roll out of the room with them before they go. So make sure that doesn't happen. And that's not just like inconvenient, right? I mean, that can be, that can have real effects on patient outcomes. Cause like without those scans, A, you don't know kind of where you started. So you don't know, even if you re-image them, you don't know what's changed, right? And also like scanners are a dangerous place to be. And uh, if you, you know, you've just spent three hours in a transport, you're cold, you're a little bit more coagulopathic than you were. And now you're going to have to go spend some time in a, in a CT scanner to sort of rediscover the injuries that, that were known um, at the other place. Like you're actually talking about real patient risk by losing those records in transit. And one of the things I've seen that I really liked was there was one ambulance company that used to take a safety pin and just pin the CD to the patient. It was like notes that you had to take home from school, right? That your like first grade teacher would make sure you didn't miss that report card by like attaching it to your body. Yeah, you, you also run the risk of that's increased radiation if you have to repeat all the CT scans. We we looked at we studied this and published it a few years ago. This was about five years ago. We still had about twenty percent of our transfers not make it here with CTs such that they had to get repeated. So, you know, it, it still happens, but we've gotten much better in the, than the past when it was just automatic. We were repeating all the CT scans in transferred patients. That's true. And then I think when we looked at a cost analysis of what that ended up being, is an additional $50,000 or more in expenses to repeat trauma-associated CT scans. So when you think about a systems issue, you know, if, if only the paper looked like it cost $50,000, perhaps it wouldn't get left behind. We're going to start printing our CT reports on $100 bills and make sure be. people don't lose them. Yeah. Anything else that leaps to mind? I, I guess the, the other sort of insidious thing that comes to mind when I just think about shock and like, you know, why is this patient like not responding to these fluids, particularly patients who we've never like seen awake you know, that patient that you pull out of a car crash and you've never actually had a, had a conversation with them or, or done an exam where they can follow commands is spine injuries and neurogenic shock and like remembering that that exists. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's something to, to always always be aware of in the patients that, you know, come in with GCS, very low GCS scores. You know, I've seen a variety of weird things happen over my over over my time. At least the at least the alert patients that have neurogenic shock, you can usually sort that out pretty quickly. But shock is hemorrhagic, 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 hemorrhagic and trauma patients until proven otherwise. So just because they're paralyzed and you think it's neurogenic shock, they still need to be evaluated for whether they're they've ruptured their spleen and have a belly full of blood as well. So you can't just automatically say, oh, they're paralyzed. Let's blame this on neurogenic shock. And, and you know, I've seen cardiogenic shock as well that made it to the made it to the ED alive, um, but had a significant cardiac injury. And, and you know, so there are other things besides hemorrhage that, that if things don't make sense, we had a pediatric patient here just uh, not too long ago that they got transported by a helicopter after a high-speed motor vehicle collision. And um, she was hypotensive in the field. The, they gave her fluids and route, crystalloid and route. She was still hypotensive. They put her on pressors. Um, when she arrived at our place, she was getting pressors and was still hypotensive. And, and to be honest, she didn't look like she had anything wrong with her. And I was like, what is going on here? And so we start to fast her and we ultrasound her abdomen. There's a little bit of fluid in her abdomen, but not, I mean, it's just a little trace. And, and then we got to her heart and we saw massive pericardial tamponade. And that totally changed what what we did, right? And uh, and she went quickly to the OR, and sure enough, she had a right ventricular I- injury that got repaired fairly quickly, um, and she did fine. And like a week later, she's discharged. I mean, it's amazing what happened. But fortunately, we you know we didn't miss that the the fact that uh, there are other causes of shock besides besides hemorrhage, but hemorrhage is is first, second, and third. Right. Yeah. So like always remembering that hemorrhage should be on your list, right? Don't write it off as neurogenic shock because they can't move their legs or, you know, remember cardiogenic shock can happen in a teenager if it's direct pericardial tamponade, but also remember that if hemorrhage doesn't explain it, that there are other things that you need to be, be thoughtful of. Yes. Well, and certainly one of the things that I find trips people up is that if they see a patient that's tachypneic and then does poorly, they assume that it was a respiratory problem that was driving the tachypnea, but rapid breathing is a compensatory mechanism for acidosis to breathe off that excess CO2. So what you might have is sepsis or occult hemorrhage that's presenting with respiratory distress. And so even though the ATLS algorithm is airway breathing circulation. I think what we're going to see is more and more emphasis on circulation first. Well, we're starting to see that in CPR now, right? It's like start compressions, then do your rescue breaths. Yeah, you, know, you got to move move the blood around, and you got to have blood, and you got to have the blood to move. Having intubating isn't going to bring that patient back. And we see that in kids too. Like you know, our oh, our first question whenever anyone calls us about an injured child is, "What's the heart rate?" Right? Because in kids, that compensatory response can be extraordinary, and they can look completely fine, but they're tachycardic, and then they like fall off a cliff. Right? So you are you're always looking for those those signs that the body is trying to compensate, right? That increased respiratory rate, that increased heart rate that are a sign that you are working your way towards a complete cardiovascular collapse. Yeah, it's a good point. I always say to the residents that if you're waiting for hypotension in the pediatric uh, patient to tell you that you need to start resuscitating them, you've you've missed the boat. Well, and I think that that's also very true about those patients you were talking about, Jim, who have some injuries to the chest that make you suspicious for tamponade. So patients that come in with respiratory distress, but a stab wound to the chest often get treated with needle decompression 
or chest tubes and the thought is some problem happened with their lungs when in fact it's tamponade and that's the reason why they're having tachypnea and the reason why they're having shock and now also the reason why their O2 sat is 60. Got to circulate that blood. It's not going to deliver oxygen. We, we focus a lot on the, the ABCs here. And I think that reminds me of uh, another common miss, particularly in kids. You know, we do A, B, C, D, we, we get to E, but then we F, G, which is forget the glucose. And I think that, that that's something that I've been tripped up on before. Like a kid, just like, they seem fine. None, none of this makes sense. Why are they not responsive? And then their glucose is... 20. And that's the reason. <laughs> it's easy to fix. Yeah. We, I mean, we see that in the non-trauma patients in the emergency department too. I mean, that's just one of those things you always have to check in the patient with decreased mental status is their sugar because you are, you don't want to get the patient's chemistry back 30 minutes after they've arrived in the emergency department and you've intubated them and got a head CT only to find out their blood sugar was 20 and all they really needed was some sugar. That's absolutely true. And the only time I've ever been on an airplane, what they call overhead, is there a doctor on the plane? I was on a flight back from Africa. And that's, that's what it was. A young lady who was doing fine suddenly became unconscious. And we're trying to figure out of the variety of things, what could it be? And somebody noticed she had an insulin pump going through all the different time zone changes. Her <laughs> insulin pump malfunctioned and she ended up hypoglycemic. That was a better fix than what I was hoping for. Anything else that leaps to mind? Things that uh, when the, uh, you, know, you run into a, a rural EMT person at a dinner party and they want to talk shop, anything that, that you, you wish you could uh, make sure everybody knew? You know, the other thing that's kind of happened pre-hospital is the administration of TXA in um, oh, sure. severely injured trauma patients has moved out of the emergency department to some degree and, and pre-hospital providers are now administrating it. It's not clear from the literature how how beneficial that's going to be, but, you know, it's under study. And I think if you're a believer in TXA, that giving it, the data does support that the sooner you give it, the better. So I think that's something to look forward to in the future. Rachel, anything you're seeing, so much of what we now know, and including TXA, you know, comes from that military experience. Anything you're seeing coming down the line from the military uh, that we can look forward to in the next five or 10 years? So I think that there's going to be some major changes coming, and it'll be interesting to see exactly how it plays out. Over the last 20 years, there was a lot of focus on this golden hour policy to try to get patients to definitive care as quickly as possible. But now the landscape is really changing. And what we're preparing for in the Department of Defense is for situations where patients are going to need to be managed in the pre-hospital setting for hours to days before evacuation is going to be ready. So there's a real focus on what they're calling prolonged field care and damage control resuscitation. And I think part of that is going to influence how we manage the pre-hospital setting here in the United States, which still has this EMS-driven scoop and run mentality to it. Whereas in other parts of the world, there's physicians on the team who do a little bit more stay and play. And it's always been U.S. versus other countries kind of debate. But what we're going to see now is as the U.S. physicians who are typically in the emergency department start moving out into the field in a military setting, then bring back some of the benefits of how other countries have been doing it all along. And maybe we'll be able to see some integrated changes with our EMS system to get physicians out there sometimes. Yeah, you can imagine that rural setting 
with those long transport times, like that's where that's going to be applicable. And it's, you know, maybe that also the harder place to get physician response, but you know, that's where it's the, the payoff is certainly going to be. So that, that's going to be fascinating to watch that transition from the, the military into the civilian practice, which is I think how we've arrived at the vast majority of our current civilian trauma protocols. Exciting things to come. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for um, for taking the time to sort of talk about these snakes in the grass. You know, I, this has been a conversation that has um, given me a lot of uh, palpitations with like remembering specific events and near misses in my past. And um, hopefully people can sort of learn from, from our experiences uh, to keep an eye out for these things that can come out and bite you uh, when you least expect it. So thank you both so much. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. Yes. Thank you for having me. It was a privilege. Country Hits, Rural Trauma from the Scene to the Emergency Department, is a production of Wisconsin's South Central Regional Trauma Advisory Council. Go Badgers! If you enjoyed this episode, there are seven more, so check those out too. And please, rate and review the show so others can find it. Most importantly, tell your friends. This podcast is produced by me, Jonathan Kohler, and Ben Ethan, with production assistance from Terry Hoover. It's mixed and edited by the great J.P. Swenson. Special thanks to Lori Silverberg and Nicole Jennings at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and to Shin Hiroshi, Diana Farmer, Joe Galante, and Nate Cooperman at the University of California, Davis. And an extra special thanks to Dan Williams and the members of the South Central RTAC for deciding they wanted this podcast and what they wanted it to be about. Thanks for listening. Stay safe out there. Stay safe out there.